It's good to see you. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, my name is Jeanette Thomas. For those of you who don't know me, I serve as the pastor of Extension Ministries here at Christ Community, and I have the privilege of working with our many different congregations here in the city in the arena of our missional partnerships. So I'm not here very often, but uh, and this next part might actually sound a little bit strange because I don't make it to Olathe on very many Sunday mornings, but... I was thinking as I was driving out here this morning that coming here really kind of feels a little bit like coming home to me. And I think there are a couple reasons why that is the case. Uh, one is that Nathan and I, Nathan, the campus pastor here, if you don't know him, many of you, probably most of you do, uh, we did our MDiv work together. We attended seminary during the exact same three-year period of time. And then maybe even more significant, we launched into our very first year of pastoral ministry, working very close together at Christ Community. And Nathan, along with Kelly, became Kelly, his wife, uh, those two became very dear friends to me, and to this day, I think of Nathan much more like a brother than a colleague, and so getting to be out here with Olathe, where Nathan spends so much of his time, is special for me, um, and it's also true that my community group, uh, many of them, I think it's still most of them, though many did leave to do the pioneer work in Shawnee, and we're kind of divided now, but, but my community group is a mix of Olathe and Shawnee congregants, and so I have the chance on most weeks to gather with them and I keep up with kind of the life of the body through that. And then I have one other connection with the Olathe congregation that maybe is even the closest connection, and that is that my twin sister is a member here. She and her family are involved. Haley Mayernick is her name. And you probably will not confuse us. Don't worry about that. <laughs> we don't look anything alike. But she serves with our children's ministry. She just entered into a part-time um, capacity of working with children's ministries this past year. And they're two little tykes. They're not as little anymore. Now they're like five and eight. They're growing up six and eight, I think. Oh, get that straight. Aunt Nettie, get that straight. Uh, but they're out here. And so really just driving out here, I was thinking, what a privilege it is to come and have this message with, with you all this morning. And I'm delighted to be here. So as we turn to our text in 1 Corinthians, uh, join me, join with me as we say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this unique opportunity to come week after week and gather as your family. It's something that you did, that you brought together when we came to know Jesus. We didn't just come to know a person, but we were incorporated into the body of Christ, and we're really grateful for that and for these ties that bind us, uh, both relationally and, and affinity, but the deepest tie, the blood of Jesus, that binds us together. And we pray that as we enter into the text of 1 Corinthians 7 today, that you would just speak to us wherever we are today. Lord, I pray that you would just enliven your word, give us a compelling message for each one wherever we come in today. We ask it in Jesus' name and for your sake, we pray. Amen. So, as I mentioned in the prayer, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 7 today in this message on singleness. And I have to tell you that as I've spent time over this past week studying the text, I've really come to love it. And for me to say that to you now on Sunday uh, kind of makes me smile because on Monday, I was not feeling exactly that way. You know, initially, Nathan called me several weeks back and said, hey, would you come? I'm going to be on vacation. Love to have you come and do this message. And I said, I'd love to. It sounds really fun. He smiled. He was happy. I smiled. I was happy. We hung up the phone. And then on Monday of this week, I opened the text to verse 25, and I started reading 
Now, concerning the betrothed, and then I, then I continued to kind of wade through the, the logic and the argument of the text, and I just thought, what have I gotten myself into here on Sunday morning? But as I've been reflecting and meditating and praying on this text, I have to say I have come to love it. And I think you'll understand as we walk through it together today, it may still not be the one you're going to go home and memorize, but I think you're going to really enjoy this text. And two reasons why I just want to name at the outset. One is that it became really clear to me early in the week that this text is not a text or a message on singleness. It's about some real unique, special, kind of weird calling to the celibate single life. You know, the way singleness oftentimes kind of gets talked about in church, you know. That's not what this text is about in 1 Corinthians 7. That's not the heart of it. And as we walk through, I think you'll understand the fullness that comes with this message. Another thing about this message is that it's not situated on the margins. I mean, the minute you look down at 1 Corinthians 7, you just see the fullness of the congregation. There's the husbands, there's the wives, it's the widows talking about the divorce. And it's not just the people, it's the fullness of topics, you know, from marriage to calling. And here we are today talking about, about singleness. And it's right there, right there in the middle of everything that Paul parks this message on singleness. It's a message on singleness, and it's a message for everyone. Because ultimately, it's a message about what is ultimate, about what matters most. That really makes a difference, really matters. Because the fact of the matter is that married or single, God needs us to understand that neither one of those are ultimate realities. Because at the end of the day, God hasn't promised that he's going to bring to us this spouse that we've been praying and kind of banking our life on, right? Or maybe for your daughter or your grandson. It's not a given promise of God. It's also true that maybe the spouse that you prayed for, prayed for has not turned out to be the spouse you expected or you hoped for. The spouse who's betrayed you, who's left, maybe... There's a really tough deal, and your spouse passed away 10 years ago. You know, there's all kinds of reasons why this message on singleness is relevant for every one of us. And what I love is that the message of singleness we find in 1 Corinthians 7 comes in the heart of real life normal. It's a message on single right in the midst of normal, sometimes in the midst of broken. And this message is a compelling vision for the beauty of singleness, because God's kingdom is our ultimate reality, and it's our final destiny. Singleness is good. It's not better. It's not worse. Singleness is a gift, maybe not in the way you think. And singleness is this good gift because of Jesus Christ and his body. So that's where we're going today. Singleness is good. As we look at that, I, I want to begin picking up where Paul does, where he begins to reference singleness in verse, not, or in verse 6. Paul writes, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Those words in Paul's day to the Corinthian church would have sounded radical. 
I mean, in a place where status and even just basic respectability was bound to marriage, where property rights were a function of getting married, not just security, but basic sustenance was, was bound up with marriage. For Paul to, to say this, to say, for you to remain single would be a good thing, that's a radical statement. And I think it's helpful to recall that context in the early church, because even though our situation right here in Kansas City is different in many ways, I think our perspective on marriage is surprisingly similar. In many ways, marriage is still this real central piece. And this is true broadly in our culture. I mean, you can just look everywhere out and see it from the TV shows. You know, you've got The Bachelor. Uh, what's the guy's name from Iowa? Chris. He's, he will go to extremes to find the love of his life, you know. And, okay, maybe that's really, maybe we're all like, well, look, nobody would really do that, you know. <laughs> I know there are some closet Bachelor watchers out there, by the way. But, uh, you know, even if you think about just kind of the normal sitcoms and, uh, I mean, none of them are real life, but you know, think of friends. I mean, every one of those friends, by the time you get to the end of the, the series, they've been dating and marrying. I mean, everyone's sex in the city. Everything's culminating in this coupled or this, this married reality. But if we take it even closer to home and we look at the church, there's still this fixation on marriage, this kind of expectation. It can be in many spaces, and in many ways, it can be kind of a consuming focus I mean, even just a quick walk through the Christian bookstore, you know, the shelves are overflowing with resources on marriage and family. And this is not meant to be a rant on the really needed resources to help support that work. I understand those are really important, though maybe all of us have read one or two that could have done without publication. Uh, But the fact is that we look at the comparison and there is a gaping hole in terms of a vision, any kind of compelling vision for the single life. I'm afraid there's not a very nice way to say this. In many cases, we have idolized marriage. And this is bad for our marriages, and it's destructive for the singles in our midst. Marriage has become almost a kind of status piece, almost kind of this mark of maturity. You know, like, if, if you kind of, once you get married, then you're kind of the real deal Christian, you know? And maybe if you have a couple kids, you know, you really, something to lay fat. I think you guys are really spiritual, according to <laughs> No. I mean, of course, we would never say that, right? We never say that out loud, but this is kind of the water we swim in, right? Have you ever thought about this, that singleness is defined as abstinence in the church? It's usually the way singleness gets talked about. And abstinence is not a robust vision of the single life. It's a word we use to describe the absence of sex usually while we're waiting to get married. And it leaves many Christians feeling that if marriage never comes, something's probably really wrong. They're really wrong. I hope it's okay to speak candidly today about this. And it's, again, it's not about denigrating marriage or, or pointing the finger at families. We have got to get a hold of a bigger vision for singleness. It's important for so many reasons. For one, it's mission critical for us. Did you know that 46% of the American adult population is single? But when you look at the evangelical American church, less than 25% of our adults are single. That's about half of the single population is just saying, you know, the church must not be for me. By the way, it's interesting, mainline and, and Catholic churches reflect more broadly the culture at large, but the evangelical church really lags behind. Another stat, uh, less than 10% of the adults in the evangelical church over 30 years of age are single. 
I had Jason Krogman run the numbers for me here out, out here in Olathe. Just wanted to see. Now, we, there was no way to check the 30 years and older because you all are not giving us your birth years. So, <laughs> my, <laughs> but in the, American, in the congregation broadly for Olathe, 18 and older, um, you guys are right at 24%, you know? But this, look, this problem is bigger than stats. The reality is that this meager message on singleness is an incredibly shaky foundation to build a life on. It is a thin existence. And it's a problem where the way we framed it, the solution points to marriage and not to Jesus. Do you see this idol that would demand more and more from us and it would offer less and less? And this anemic approach to singleness, it's not what we find in the text here in Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7. Remember, Paul is not just writing to folks who feel called to singleness or have the preference for singleness. Remember in the text, the widows are listed there, the people unmarried, people who are engaged. These are not people who have said, hey, I just really feel this unique call, this preference for singleness, but, but they find themselves in a circumstance. For whatever reason, they find themselves still in a circumstance of being single, and I think we need to hear this. I think this message is not just for, for them. I think it's for us. Maybe you are here today and you're single. Maybe you're newly single. Maybe you're, you're dealing with the fallout of a tough marriage breakup. Maybe you are here today and like me, you've been slogging through bad dates for the last decade, okay? Maybe, maybe you're single here today and it's your choice. Maybe it's not your choice. Maybe you're single and it's your fault. Maybe it's not your fault. Maybe you really feel like you know, I know why I'm single. I, 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 get the, I get the story. Maybe you don't have any idea why in the providence of God, you are sitting here today and you're single and you need to hear this word. You need to hear this word from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says to us, it is good. It is good. Now we're not going to take this further than the text goes. Your singleness is not better and it's not worse. It's good. I want to look at how Paul gets us to this understanding. Remember, in chapter 7, Paul is clearly responding here to questions and opinions, thoughts that the Corinthian believers have written to him. You remember that from verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then now, as we shift our attention to verse 25, it's clear that Paul's picking up with the next question. Now concerning the betrothed. And again, in that culture, it would have meant those who are engaged probably had a little bit more of an arrangement or kind of family involvement in mind. And what it seems is that some of the Corinthians had written to Paul and said, hey, you know, it seems good to us that the unmarried would remain single. Actually, as you look at the response, they seem to be saying it's probably more spiritual. So look with me at verse 25 as Paul responds. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. That's no direct words from Jesus when he was with us. But he's still writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, 
And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. Look, the unmarried man, he's, he's anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests, they're divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman, she's anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraints upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed or not to marry the virgin, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. It's a pretty lengthy response from Paul, and I want to make sure we're tracking with all he's saying there. It seems there are some unique circumstances, like we mentioned in, in Corinth, and the Corinthians have written to Paul with some really specific ideas, even some opinions, it seems, specifically about those who are engaged. And some Corinthians, it seems, have suggested that it would be better if these engaged folks do not go through with their marriage. Actually, it may be unspiritual to marry, and even the betrothed should remain single. And so this letter comes to Paul, and this group who just honestly turned asking, what should we do? Is it, okay to, is it okay to marry, or should we break off our engagement? And Paul's response here is fabulous. It's wise, it's pastoral. Paul says what so many pastors and parents have learned to say, it depends. <laughs> both marriage, both marriage and singleness can honor God. And then like any good pastor, Paul goes on with more. I can just kind of imagine Nathan Miller typing this email, can't you? Verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Paul's referencing here the specific situation unfolding there in Corinth, this present distress, and we just don't know what that is. Was it pressure from the Roman government? Was it persecution for the faith and kind of economic hardship? Not sure. Whatever it is, Paul is suggesting that given this present distress, it may very well be that singleness is the better choice, maybe in light of these circumstances, Given this extra work of marriage, it may be good to remain single. Marriage could cause too many troubles, and I would spare you that. But Paul, so is, all, but Paul is also adamant to say, marriage is no sin. He says that several times. Throughout the text, Paul upholds this freedom for the Corinthians. So in this situation, Paul says singleness may be best, but it's clear. It's clear from the flow of the logic. It's not a morally superior way. And nor is marriage. What is obvious, what's at the heart of this text, what Paul drives at, is that neither singleness nor marriage is of any great concern in light of the kingdom of God. This is the ultimate reality, the final destiny. That's the most essential thing. Not did you have a date on Friday night. Paul turns our world of idolatry upside down. He says, here is the question. Here's the question. 
What is going to bring God the greatest glory? What's best for the kingdom? And those are timeless questions. As we navigate even now through choices about dating or matchmaking or e-harmony, should I date that boy? Should I marry that girl? What is going to bring the most glory to the name of Jesus? When it all comes down, when in the end we stand before the king, the place where both marriage and singleness are going to be swallowed up in his presence, the defining question will not be, are you married? The defining question will be, did you do everything for the glory of my name? Did you live your singleness? Did you live your married life? Did you do it for me? Notice in verses 32 through 35, four times there's reference to the Lord. This is Paul's point. Is the Lord Jesus your master? And then beginning in verse 29, Paul, Paul kind of starts saying this even another, another way from a different angle. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And he continues, I'll paraphrase. He says, let them not mourn, let them not rejoice or buy or deal with the world. You know, Paul's not, he's not being literal. You know, he's not saying you're never going to shed a tear, ignore your wife. The point is, the point is that all this stuff that fills your life, all of these consuming, attention-getting things, they're not the main thing. They're not the main thing. The Lord, the kingdom, this is the ultimate thing. This is the final destination. And when we think of that, singleness is good. It's not better. It's not worse. And this brings us to our second point, because what Paul's making clear here is that both marriage and singleness are gifts. They're meant to serve a greater purpose. Look at verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul used this language of gift on many occasions in the New Testament. In the book of 1 Corinthians alone, he used this word gift seven different times. It's the Greek word charisma. And every single time he uses that word, he uses it differently than the way we think about gift. That word charisma in the Greek, the connotation there is a gift that's in the service of others. It's the gift that's given to give. So singleness, it is a gift, but it's, it's not a gift in this kind of weird, unique way we often think of it. Singleness is a gift to bless, to serve, to edify. So what does this look like? What, what can this look like in the context of singleness? Here again, I think our imagination is far too limited. I mean, oftentimes we think of single, singleness as a gift, and what comes to mind is, hey, we've got a few more volunteers for the greeting team, and hey, hey get some folks down there changing diapers. Like, hey, praise God for the gift of singleness. You know? Or maybe, if we're honest, maybe singleness as a gift is really more about some pretty fabulous prospects. Come on over to Christ's community, you know? I mean, and, and look, these things, it's not that they're not true. It's not that they're all untrue. But again, I think the imagination is too limited if that's the way we think about it. Singleness as a gift is more than this. And today I want us to consider five ways that I think singleness is an incredible gift to the church. First one, singleness shows us a picture of sacrificial love. We hear a lot about this in the context of marriage, right? And often with it, that metaphor of marriage, that beautiful metaphor of Christ's love for the church, and nothing will detract from that. Indeed, that's one of the most unique, creative, and amazing things about the marriages that God has developed and called together. It's also true that when it comes to sacrifice, 
couples do not have a corner on the market, or at least they shouldn't. God calls every single one of his kids to sacrificial love. What happens is that in the context of marriage, that sacrifice is often more predetermined and maybe even a little more imposed. It's the person you woke up beside this morning, right? In the single, night, in the single life, this loving sacrifice may have a million different faces. God, I have found God to be infinitely creative. And it sometimes takes a little more intentionality, maybe even a little more obedience to live into the fullness of that metaphor. I found a quote while I was prepping for the message that I think is so helpful to fill out our understanding about this. It says, while the metaphor of marriage gives us insights into the permanent, exclusive relationship between God and us, the metaphor of singleness captures a different aspect of this relationship that reminds us of God's intense love for everyone and his desire that all will have fellowship with him. Both metaphors are necessary to help reveal the complexity of God's love for us. Now, I want to get even a little more specific because I fear that this could stay theoretical. How do singles show us this metaphor? How do they show us this sacrificial love? One way I think they do it is I think they show up. They show up in the church and they show up in the world and they live God-honoring lives. And you might say, big deal. You know, we all have to show up. What, what choice do singles have? But actually, as our stats and our stories earlier were reminding us, single people actually have a lot of choices. And it matters that singles are living obedient, God-pleasing lives and they're choosing to invest in the church, especially when that often requires a layer of translation at every turn, when they're often just having to incorporate into the family world, when it requires a kind of forgiveness on the front end, when we've accidentally failed to welcome them or kind of overlooked them as people. It matters that Christian singles show up in sacrificial love this way. And I think any married couple here could testify that that's a first step in the giving of sacrificial love. But of course, sacrificial love does call us to more to that. It's not just about showing up. It is also about entering in. And it is about changing a diaper, about serving. So it's about learning the world of Curious George and competitive soccer leagues when your life has nothing to do with it. Not because you like care so deeply initially, but because that's the start. That's the start of how you come into these spaces. It's the start of entering in. It's the start of showing God's intense love for everyone. I love the vision that Eve Tushnet has for this. She invites singles to consider becoming involved with what she calls on-call love. Listen to her wisdom here. For single lay people who live alone, it might be worth asking, are there ways I could get a little closer to offering the on-call love my married and parenting friends so often must provide? Are there times when I hold myself back from others because I'm too attached to my own freedom, the pleasure of my own company, and the security of my own plans and preferences? Do I choose ways of helping and giving that are most gratifying to my ego, such as giving advice or selecting presents I know they'll enjoy and praise, but avoid the boring or gross tasks of love like making casseroles and learning to burp infants? Could I live the more demanding and chaotic life of the person who has a duty to love? We have all been given this duty to love. We've all been given the gift of sacrificial love, and it is beautiful in the single life too. 
Singleness also reminds us that our identity is firmly anchored in Jesus. Here's the deal, friends. Christian singles do not fit in. (laughs) They don't fit in anywhere, okay? Look, they're not having sex and they're not obsessed with shopping. The culture's dropped them, okay? And in the Christian world, in the best case scenario for singles, we're on call for diapers and potlucks, but after the cleanup happens, when you go home and your house becomes blissfully quiet, my house becomes desperately isolated. Did we say that I was single? You know I'm single. (laughs) This is what happens. And it's not just in the evening hours or during the holidays or every time vacation planning comes around. This untethered, misfit reality just simply sort of always is. We don't fit. This became really clear to me a couple summers ago. My family gathered together for a family reunion and really great time, really close with that family. And an innocent idea was hatched. Hey, let's take, let's take photos. You know, everybody's taking photos. And then, of course, it develops. Hey, let's get photos of the families and the couples. And so one by one, everyone's coming and posing. And all of a sudden, it gets to me. And I mean, people did not know what to do. <laughs> Where does she fit? Finally, awkwardly, the suggestion was made that I should hop in with my gay cousin and his partner for the photos. <laughs> Which I did, which I did hop in, and they were, they were super sweet about it. And then, of course, they went over the side to try and get some photos, just the two of them. You know, where did I fit? I didn't fit. I didn't fit. And you guys, this is not a story about my insensitive family. They are fabulous, which proves, which proves the point. This story is about how deeply and desperately We've got to anchor our identity in Jesus. Always. All of us. He's who we are. Remember that? We don't belong to us. We belong to him. And I'll be honest, I shed a few few tears that afternoon. I knew, I knew I had a home. And in a world that is constantly feeding us lies, deep-seated, soul-sucking lies about our feelings, about our relationships, about who we are and who we aren't. The gift of singleness is a powerful reminder that our identity is in Jesus, and we belong to him. Singleness reminds us of that. Singleness also calls us to friendship. Here's the next part. We don't just belong to him. We belong to us. We belong to one another. And Paul's going to develop this. I mean, wait till we get to chapter 12. Singleness reminds us of the importance of friendship in the family of God. The fact is that I do not understand all of the mysteries that we are stewarding today as we talk about this topic. How the Jewish scholar Paul, who would have memorized Genesis 2, it is not good for a man to be alone, would have also pinned the inspired words of 1 Corinthians 7. It is Good for you to remain single. But surely friendship in the body of Christ has something to do with that. And this mystery is important. God said that our witness depends on it. People will know that we're we're his disciples by how we love one another. And brothers need sisters, and sisters need brothers, married and single. But singles bring to our family a unique vulnerability. I desperately need you to care about this family like you care for your own. And I I know that sounds radical, but I do believe this is very much what Jesus had in mind when in Matthew, people came to him and said, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are down there out, out there for you. And Jesus said back, do you remember this part? He said, 
Where are, who are? He said, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked at the ragtag group of disciples and he said, these are my mother. These are my brothers. The family of God shines its brightest when we lay down our lives in friendship and family ties with devotion to one another. Fourth thing is that singleness reminds us of God's design for human sexuality. Now, even as I venture into this point, I am mindful that Nathan overpromised a couple weeks ago when we were wrapping up our series on human sexuality. Remember, he said, we're not going to touch this. <laughs> and I was thinking at the time, brother, you don't know where we're going. Uh, but I would be negligent. Look, I would be negligent if we didn't mention the fact that singles who live in sexual purity remind us, they remind us that sex is not our God. This is one reason why it is so important to understand singleness as a concept that's bigger than abstinence or just kind of hanging on until marriage. You know, God did not make that promise of marriage or sexual consummation to any of his kids. We belong to God. And as Nathan discussed a few weeks back, sex at its essence is about self-giving love. Now, some of you this morning are called to this in marriage. What a dance that is. What a dance. Singleness, or excuse me, singles are called to this in singleness. And one of the most helpful books that I found on this topic is a book called Singled Out, Why Celibacy Must Be Reinvented in Today's Church. I highly recommend it to everyone here. In one of the chapters, the authors compile some resources to help singles wrestle through this. What do I do with my longings for intimacy, sexual fulfillment? You know, true love waits might not be the answer. And after looking at what's really the purpose and the heart of sexuality, according to God, they encourage singles to bear with their sexual aches, that's the language they use, by redirecting and reframing them. Here's a quote. Redirecting takes sexual energy and uses it to motivate other activities and accomplishments. Reframing sees into the deeper meaning of sexual desire, allowing such perspective to inspire greater wholeness. Rather than denying these desires, singles let the desire lead into positive community within the church where they may be spurred toward compassion, depth of character, and adventures in true intimacy. Can you imagine if our church community, singled and married, could get a hold of this? Sex remi- or excuse me, singleness reminds us that sex is not our God. God's our God. And fifth thing, singleness is a gift to the church because it reminds us that we're waiting for our final home. You know, even the most faithful singles who are, who are daily depending on God, you know, they realize that sometimes the loneliness, the brokenness, feelings of inadequ- inadequacy, the aches, these just are. And our best efforts at redirecting and reframing don't take us to another world. They don't take us home. The temptation can be to make somebody else a scapegoat, the roommate or the spouse or the spouse we don't yet have. But our deepest longings are deeper than we know. And singleness reminds us we're not aching for a spouse. We're not aching for sex or more money or more time. We're aching for home. In all of our inconsummate groaning, singleness says, that's okay. Consider this quote by Henry Nouwen. When we are impatient, when we want to give up our loneliness and try to overcome the separation and the incompleteness we feel, we easily relate to our human world with 
devastating expectations. We ignore what we already know with a deep-seated intuitive knowledge that no love or friendship, no intimate embrace or tender kiss, no community, commune or collective, no man or woman will ever be able to satisfy our desire to be released from our lonely condition. This truth is so disconcerting and painful that we're more prone to play games with our fantasies than to face the truth of our existence. So we keep hoping that one day we'll find the man who really understands, the woman who will bring peace to our restless life, that job where we can fulfill our potential, the book that'll explain everything, a place where finally we'll feel at home. Such false hope leads us to make exhausting demands and prepares us for bitterness and dangerous hostility when we start discovering that nobody and nothing can live up to our expectations. And so we do live in the not yet, with just a taste of this kingdom that God has begun in Jesus, but it's enough, it's enough, because we serve a living savior. We serve a single Messiah who didn't just come one time, but he came again, he rose again, and he came to live with us, he came as our Emmanuel, our God with us, he came to live in us, in dwelling spirit, he began this little project we call the family of God, the body of Christ. This, friends, is why singleness is a good gift, because God makes it so. Singleness is a good gift because of Christ and his body. You know, my singleness, probably much like your singleness or your marriage, has gone through many seasons of highs and lows. I remember when my sister married, uh, the pastor shared such words of wisdom. I remember I was standing up there, I'm the bride of, or what do you call it, maid of honor. Let's not get into that. (laughs) I'm the maid of honor. And, you know, the fact is, uh, I remember he said, he looked him straight in the eye, he said, marriage is made for a lifetime. You need to understand marriage is made for a lifetime. There are going to be highs. There are going to be lows. There are going to be years that you never want to forget. There are going to be years you never want to talk about again. I think singleness is a lot like that. Of course, the landscape and the horizons are much different. But what matters is that we stay with it, with Jesus, with his family, over the long haul. You know, last year for me was a year that I never want to talk about again. You know what got me through was Jesus in the family of God. And I remember I was having a specifically in November, I was having a tough go, my friends. And I was gearing up for some international travel. Travel can be kind of a tricky space for single people. There's not somebody waiting in the evenings for your call back home and there's nobody kind of welcoming you at the airport. You can imagine my shock and my delight when I walked into my home after about two weeks of travel and I found a spread, a refrigerator stocked full of food. The minute I saw it, the minute I saw it, the smiling faces of a dozen people in the body of Christ, folks from from my community group, came to my mind. These are people who love me well. And the scripture came to mind. God sets the lonely in families. He does that, my friends. He's enough. And like the Israelites who wondered, they wondered every day as they went out to get that daily provision of manna. I've always loved that picture, haven't you? I mean, every day, these Israelites went out, every night, and they had just what they needed. Never too much, never too little. Do you know what the word for manna, does anybody know what the word for manna means? It means, what is this? (laughs) What, 
what is this? But every day it came, every day it came, and every day it was enough. And so it is, so it is with God's provision in our marriages, in our singleness. It's often strange. It's often faith-stretching. It usually requires this beautiful mess, a trial and error, and always the broader family of God. But friends, it's enough. Our living Messiah and his family, they're more than enough. Singleness is good. Singleness is a gift, and it's a good gift because of Jesus and his body. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your words of life. Thank you for the reminders that you give us. We thank you for people like Paul and people like Pastor Nathan who remind us and help to cultivate this space of the family of God and point us to Jesus. And Lord, I know different ones of us are are coming in today and we've heard this message and we're thinking about those little spots in our life that just feel a little bare and it can be easy to feel like there's a lot of scarcity there. But we know from your word that you are the living water, the fountain of infinite resources. And we ask today that even now, even as we enter into this time of reflection and worship, that you would come and be enough for us. We pray in Jesus' name and to your glory. Amen.